Software must be built with security in mind, not done as an afterthought. This belief has led to the emergence of DevSecOps, in which security is baked into software development from the start. Hello, I'm Rob O'Regan, Global Content Director with IDG. In Episode 2 of our podcast series, A Hard Look at Software Security, we'll discuss the practice of DevSecOps, how effective it is, and why more enterprises should consider adopting it. This podcast is brought to you by Veracode, which delivers the application security solutions and services today's software-driven world requires. I'm joined today by Tim Jarrett, Senior Director of Product Marketing with Veracode. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Rob. This year's State of Software Security report from Veracode finds a strong correlation between high rates of security scanning and lower long-term application risks, which points to the power of DevSecOps. Tim, let's start there. What tends to happen when an organization scans its software for vulnerabilities more frequently? Yeah, this was one of the most unique findings that we had in this year's Data Software Security Report, and we'll get into the data science of it a little bit later on, I think. But the bottom line discovery that we made was that organizations that were scanning their software at rates approaching several times a week to daily were fixing software vulnerabilities a lot faster and fixing more of the software vulnerabilities in their applications much more quickly uh, at rates up to 11 and a half times faster than the baseline software development teams that were that were going in and trying to reduce risks in their applications. And this was surprising to us on some level because of the magnitude of the difference, but it was also a really exciting finding because it bears out a lot of what people have been saying in the industry could happen when you start to integrate security more tightly with development organizations, practices, and tooling, and you know, kind of providing us with one of the first hard proof points around the security effectiveness of DevSecOps. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. So what are some of the basic principles of DevSecOps? Yeah, this is kind of one of these fuzzy terms that's been in use in the last few years in security, honestly, security marketing, but also we hear a lot of customer organizations talk about doing DevSecOps. And, and so a lot of concepts have, have kind of tarballed into this word but at its root, what we mean when we say DevSecOps is you're taking information security, particularly that that's related to security of an application, and you're bringing it much, much earlier in the process into the actual software development kind of process and tooling that the developers are using rather than trying to bolt on security at the end. I think that the industry has shown pretty comprehensively over the past decade or so that adding software security at the end of a development lifecycle does nothing but enrage <laughs> all the stakeholders involved and, and doesn't really do anything to make software more secure. So the idea with DevSecOps is you take what the DevOps community has already done in merging kind of operational and post-release functionality around software, and you apply the same idea to bringing security earlier in the process and making it culturally part of what the development teams are doing. And when we're talking about the things that you do in DevSecOps, it's nothing particularly surprising, but some of the steps can be a little bit challenging for teams to implement depending on how old the code base is, how much, you know, kind of spaghetti that they've got in the in the code base. But you're basically talking about things like automating security testing, integrating it into some sort of automated pipeline so you quickly find out if you've introduced security defects, and then addressing cultural issues like making sure that you 
train members of the development organization in basic security principles and make them an extension of whatever information security organization that you've got. So that's that's the basic idea. Let's go back to the state of software security report for a second. So one of the differences in this year's report, which is the ninth iteration, was that Veracode partnered with a data science firm, Scientia Institute, to take a fresh look at vulnerability fixed behavior. Tim, what did you uncover there? Yeah, so this was the the root of the finding that we discussed at the top of the of the conversation. What we have done over the last nine plus volumes of the state of software security is take anonymized data from the testing that Veracode customers have done on their applications. And over the past nine years, the volume of data that we look at typically within a range of about a year's worth of, of testing has grown substantially to the point really where, A, we couldn't effectively kind of do the, the analysis ourselves. It was kind of outstripping our in-house ability to, to work with the data set given the size it was. And B, Myself and, and Chris Eng, who's another co-author of the study, are, are kind of data analysis nerds. We want to make sure that when we're drawing conclusions from our data, that we're drawing the right conclusions and that we're considering you know, kind of all the aspects of the data set. And, and we've long thought it would be great to get somebody in here who does nothing but data science, who understands security, and who can really help us drive some new insights out of the data. And that's what Scientia brought to the table. And what they did was they took a really interesting approach to the data. We were looking this year at, at a data set that for the first time included kind of individual vulnerabilities. And, and you know, because we're not dealing, we're, we're dealing with things that are found through automated processes. So there are millions and millions of these in the data set. And, you know, we said, what can you do with this data? And what Scientia said was, well, you know, what's interesting about these vulnerabilities is that they have a born by date and then they have a died on date. And with a data set like that, you can statistically treat the vulnerabilities as though they are members of an epidemic bearing population. And you can look at the mortality, if you will, of the flaws. We, we looked at the data that that brought to us. And we said, maybe mortality isn't the right word in this case. So we, we talk about the persistence of the findings. How long do they stay around in an application? And this takes concepts that are looked at in industry like mean time to remediate to the next step. The problem with mean time to remediate is historically is that it only looks at vulnerabilities that you've actually fixed. It ignores all the ones that you haven't fixed yet. And so you get mean time to remediate numbers that are artificially low because they're only on the small portion of the issues that you've actually fixed. What Scientia was able to do was to create a statistical model that said, taking all vulnerabilities into account, this is how long it's going to take you to fix the first 25%, to fix 50% of the vulnerabilities, and to fix 75% of the vulnerabilities. And that data analysis allowed us to get a much better picture of how long these risks were sticking around in the application and to characterize you know, kind of what the resulting impact that the application security activities had on the security of the organization. A reminder that this podcast is brought to you by Veracode, which delivers the application security solutions and services today's software-driven world requires. Tim, to that point about persistence, what are some of the risks that organizations incur when flaws that are discovered but not remediated persist over time? Yeah, I think the thing that we're concerned about here is the window of exposure. So for certain categories of, of vulnerabilities, like 
vulnerabilities in known open source components, there are off-the-shelf exploits for these vulnerabilities. And as soon as they become publicly facing, the odds are that somebody scanning large portions of the internet with some off-the-shelf tool is going to find the vulnerability and exploit it. And this is one of the reasons why people really care about vulnerabilities in open source code. But that doesn't mean that vulnerabilities in the code that your team wrote are not exploitable. It just means that it's going to take longer for somebody to discover them and exploit them. And the longer those vulnerabilities stick around in the software, the greater the odds are that you're going to get exploited, basically. And so what the data told us about the persistence of these vulnerabilities was that things that we thought would make a difference in how quickly the, the vulnerabilities were being fixed, like how mission critical the application was, the type of vulnerability, you know, there was a little bit of an effect on how long these things stuck around. But the big surprise was that organizations that were scanning more and, you know, correspondingly that meant that they were including their scanning activities in their automation and doing it earlier in the development process, we're finding and fixing these issues much, much more quickly. And you know, you, you had organizations that within seven days would be fixing 75% of the issues that were found in their software, which is fantastic, which basically you know, kind of really brings home the promise of, of DevSecOps and makes it you know, much less likely that an attacker is going to be able to find and exploit one of those vulnerabilities before the patch to fix it is, uh, is actually pushed. So it's obvious that organizations need to take care of flaws more quickly once they've been identified, but the data shows they struggle to do that. What's holding back enterprises right. from adopting DevSecOps to improve application security? Yeah, there's really a combination of things, and these factors ultimately end up being things that organizations struggle with throughout all their development processes. Some of the One of the factors is honestly unique to the security world, and that's the compliance versus security kind of mindset. If your security team is just interested in making sure that they can hold up a paper full of checkboxes to an auditor, and they're really not going to push to get stuff scanned more than you know the once a year that it takes to supply that requirement, and yes, we have a process, yes, we're executing the process, does not actually translate to, yes, we're reducing the risk of the organization. So I, th I think one of the barriers that we see in, in organizations that are you know, kind of early in their application security journey is if compliance is their driver, they're only going to go so far in encouraging teams to development teams to take application security testing on as their own responsibility. But then there, you get to all the hurdles that DevSecOps has in common with the rest of DevOps, which is the code itself and the processes that are being used to build it. If development teams are, are building using Waterfall, basically you know the, the requirements are written and they're thrown over the wall to the development team. The development team throws the software over the wall to the testers. It's going to be hard to integrate security testing early in that process because there's no testing period integrated earlier in that process. The other thing that we see is that applications that are legacy code that haven't been architected for this world of continuous development, continuous integration, continuous deployment, have more challenges moving to a model where they can be scanned early and often because they're huge code bases. They take longer to, to scan and to, to analyze for security vulnerabilities. And they also take longer, by the way, to run through their unit tests, to run through their deployment tests and everything else. So, you know, if, if an application is, is what we call a brownfield, if it's early in its DevOps journey, it's going to be hard for organizations to do DevSecOps transformation. 
And I think the last factor is cultural and people. It can be hard to encourage people to take on yet another responsibility as part of their development and another thing in their definition of done if they don't understand the application security risks and if they you know, don't have the support of the organization in, in getting that understanding. So like everything else in business, a lot of it comes down to the people and the processes that you're using to actually run your, your development organization. So for security and development teams who are in sync, at least in their desire to implement a DevSecOps model, um, where do they start? Yep. So I think there's a couple of factors that we would advise for any application security initiative and then a couple that are specific to DevSecOps. The first is that there has to be an agreement from the organization at the top that this matters, that application security is important and that reducing the risks in applications is important. Generally, that comes in the form of a policy that's put in place that is binding that says that application security is part of the development process and that teams have to meet some minimum bar of application security before their applications can be shipped to production. And the policy ideally is something that's reinforced in the tooling so that it's easy to check as part of the development process and it's easy to report on. Once you get that in place, it's education, education, education. On the one hand, there's secure development principles that teams need to learn. Again, this is something that tooling can help with. If you are able to catch issues right as the developer is writing them, that's a great teaching moment. So a tool that can do that while the developer is working in their IDE or as they check things into the pipeline is a, is a great way to go. Beyond that, from a practical perspective, again, when you're implementing DevSecOps, you want to start with a team that's already gotten a little bit of the way along their DevOps journey. They need to have a working pipeline in place, as an example. We see a lot of people really excited about the promise of DevSecOps, but they're in the process of designing enterprise pipelines that aren't actually you know, pushing any code through yet. And so they don't really understand that all of the things that they're designing are in the real world going to have trade-offs with how long they run, how the results get back, and everything else. So we like to start with small teams that are actually building code, that are shipping code to production. It's much easier to have a conversation with that team about how they should be bringing application security into their processes, into their tooling, and then take the lessons learned from those teams and roll them more broadly across the organization. It seems like good practical advice. So, uh, so Tim, all right, uh, crystal ball time. Where do you think adoption rates of DevSecOps will be over the next five years? You know, it's it's hard to say. It took us, I want to say, something like 15 years to get to the point where Agile was widely adopted. And even with Agile as a process, people were kind of doing a lot of Agile but adoptions. We're Agile, but we don't do stand-ups. We're Agile, but we ship software once a month. And so, you know, that that's not what we would call a roaring success. DevOps got adoption and traction much more quickly because it built on top of Agile and the hard kind of process things had already been done. But by the same token, you also have a lot of challenges in rolling DevOps to all of your software. I would say that in five years, I would be surprised if we saw an organization that wasn't doing DevOps in more than a handful of teams in the organization because we are seeing lots and lots of grassroots interest by teams in, in adopting DevOps and, and getting it done and then taking DevSecOps in. And increasingly, it is developers that are asking us about security tooling and, and, uh, and where we go from there and not the security team that's driving that. 
But by the same token, I would say that in five years, we're still going to see a lot of teams that are not fully DevOps. And you know, I don't think that the push to do kind of enterprise DevOps that transforms every single software team is realistic, just because it's unrealistic that you're going to see enterprises take all of their applications and rewrite them into small chunks that can be actually deployed in a in a continuous delivery pipeline. It's it's just not going to happen that way. So, you know, I think it's going to be a pervasive part of the landscape, but I don't think everybody's going to be DevSecOps in five years. Well, it's certainly a trend to keep a close eye on. Uh, and that's a wrap for today's episode. Uh, thanks to Tim Jarrett for his insights on this topic. For more information about DevSecOps practices, visit Vericode.com. For IDG and Vericode, I'm Rob O'Regan.